Everybody, this is Jimmy Corain, and you're listening to another episode of Improv Nerd. And we're sponsored by a great new app called Improv Tonight Apt. If you've been asking yourself questions like, when did my friend say their improv show was? Or what time is that Second City show? Well, find out now with the Improv Tonight app. Improv Tonight helps me easily find out show times and information on Chicago's best improv theaters. It's got all my go-to venues like I.O., Second City, Annoyance, and more, with new theaters being added all the time. Best of all, it's free. That's right, it's free. So take my advice and download Improv Tonight today. Available for iOS and Android. We're also sponsored by the brand new Harold Ramis Film School. Do you love comedy? Have you toyed with the idea of making movies? Well, if the answer is yes, the Harold Ramis Film School is perfect for you. Located at the Second City in Chicago, this year-long program focuses on comedic filmmaking. Students are immersed in comedy training, film history, writing, and film production classes. Students will graduate the program with produced content, such as a screenplay, sitcom pilot, hour-long pilot, or short film. Visit RamisFilmSchool.com for more information. That's RamisFilmSchool.com. School.com. And if you're going to be in Chicago this summer, you are going to want to sign up for my Artist Low Comedy Weekend Summer Intensives. I'll be offering two separate weekends, July 30th through the 31st or August 6th through the 7th. But don't waste any time because these workshops sell out because in the summer, all these people from all over the world come to study improv here in Chicago. To secure your spot, just go online to my slick new website at jimmycorain.com. That's jimmycorain.com. We have another great episode for you today. Our guest today is Kate James. She is a wonderful actor, improviser, writer. She wrote on the Jeff Award-winning show, The Second City Guide to Opera. She was a member of the legendary sketch group here in Chicago, Schadenfreude. And if you're going to do any justice to a Kate James introduction, you can't forget to mention her hilarious video of a drunk Cubs fan that went viral. We talked to Kate about why she thinks so many of her siblings went into the arts. Her brother, Brian Darcy James, was in the Oscar-winning movie Spotlight. What it takes to be part of a successful sketch comedy group and the secret to having your video go viral. Before we get to the episode with Kate, um, as you know, Lauren is pregnant. Things are going well. Thank you so much for asking. I don't know if I told you that we're having a girl and her name is going to be Betsy Jane Corrine. We don't know if it's going to be Elizabeth or Betsy. We're going to call her Betsy. We don't know what her formal name is going to be. Uh, and I have to say, uh, last week, I was really feeling a lot of ex- excitement. I was going to say anxiety. I, I'm always suffering from anxiety. But some excitement. And uh, what really helped was... We went to the hospital. They do this tour. They do like a slideshow for about 45 minutes, and they explain the process from dropping Lauren off at the curb uh, to when the baby comes out and Lauren spends two days after she's given birth to Betsy uh, spending two days in the hospital. And that just really calmed me down because I, I, I think I've told you this, and it's probably why I do improv, is I'm a control freak. And if I, if I know a little about how the process is going to go, I'm less controlling and I have less anxiety. So I just wanted to share that with you. Here it is. You're going to love Kate James. I love Kate James. She's not only super talented, but she's really a nice person. Here it is, the Kate James episode. Enjoy. Jimmy's 
All right, Kate, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. So you grew up in Saginaw, Michigan, yes. an Irish Catholic family, and your family is very theatrical. Your sister teaches drama. Your brother, uh, Brian D.R.C. James, has been a big actor on Broadway and currently is starring in the movie Spotlight, yes. which was nominated for the Best Picture. What is it about your parents that inspired so many of your siblings to go into theater? Um, that is a good question. I, I'm sure my parents did their fair... Uh, amount of head scratching about that. Um, my mom jokes that sh she blames it on her brother and my dad's brother because my mom's brother was an actor, my dad's brother was an artist. And um, so they would always claim that they had quote unquote nothing to do with us and that they blamed their brothers. But the truth is um, they were huge and they are. My mom is, is still you know, here my dad passed away years ago, but they're, st they're huge lovers of the arts, and so they exposed us to a bunch growing up. They took us to see plays, and they took us down to Detroit to see the touring shows that would come through town, Broadway stuff. My dad was a huge music fan, so there's always music playing in our house, so we got exposed to a lot. And your dad was also into comedy. He exposed you to comedy. Yeah, he was a super funny guy. He was a, a, a lawyer. He was a litigator. Um, which I think is a performer in and of itself. You know, he would, sometimes I remember as a kid, there would be days where I would hear him practicing closing statements, you know, while he was shaving in the morning, so. Going over his lines. Yeah, yeah, going over his lines and uh, getting off book. So he, he was very much a performer, but he had a wonderful sense of humor and. Um, Can you give us an example of his sense of humor? Um, he, he was very goofy. He, he had, um, he loved to, now I look back and I, I love these stories, but there was definitely any sort of like child or preteen goes through that. And I know I'm going to be this parent and I know my child is going to be like, oh my God, I'm mortified by my parents. But he would say and do things that are very funny when I look back as an adult and I would just want to die as a kid. He chaperoned my seventh grade dance and because he was kind of a gregarious and affable easygoing guy the seventh grade boys congregated around him and weren't asking any of the girls to dance because of course they didn't want to they were terrified and um, I was mortified and I think my dad was like no 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 you guys gotta get out there you gotta get out there but they would much rather sit and talk to them him and I just I, I could have died but now looking back I so appreciate uh, how funny he was. And he died uh, at about 55, is that right? Uh, no, he just 50. Just 50. And how yeah. old were you when that happened? 16. How was that? It was, you know, when I talk about it, I, I don't know any different. So it's anything that you have in your life that is what it is. But I think it profoundly shaped me as a person. I, I don't think of myself as much different now than I was at 16. I think, you know, I grew up really quickly. He was sick for almost 10 years off and on. So it was sort of a reality in our house that there was always the possibility that he would get much sicker and be sort of incapacitated for a while. And then he would maybe have a surgery and, and bounce back. He would return to work. Um, you know, there was a time where he went through very, very aggressive chemotherapy and lost all his hair, but then he grew it back and went back to work. So it was sort of a yo-yo. How was that scary growing up as a kid? Um, well, my parents did an amazing job of not letting it be scary. Only now as an adult, 
as somebody who, you know, I, my father was diagnosed with cancer at 39 with four kids. So now I thought that when I was a kid that that was ancient. You know, you're like, well, you're almost 40, right. you know, what's the problem? And now that's terrifying to me. But as a kid, they just sort of forged ahead and didn't really let it affect our day to day. They just, they just did it. It was sort of a fact and then they would address it. They would talk about it if we needed to, but they wouldn't dwell on it. And then um, I think also it, it made my father an incredibly present parent. We joke that my older brother and sister kind of had a different set of parents than my younger brother and I did because, uh, you know, I think that they were much more on the straight and narrow and worried with my older brother and sister and things were much more normal. And then with my dad's illness and sort of, I think he truly had that like, well, let's seize the day. Let's do it now. We traveled a lot. He would take us out of school. He would um, take me on uh, work trips sometimes, just the two of us. And I think he had an attitude of, I, I really don't know how much time I have. So it, it, it was great. I, I contend that I had much more of a father than most people do whose fathers lived their whole entire lives. You know, uh, about a year ago, you had Thomas, yeah. a baby. Yeah. Did the feelings come up about your dad when, when you had him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because Steve and I both, Steve, my husband. Steve Waltine. Yes. Great improviser, improvised Shakespeare, main stage. Yeah. And he's a great a phenomenal guy. guy. He's yeah. not too bad. Yeah. He's not, he's, he, he does okay for himself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we both have lost our fathers. So there was definitely... More than becoming a parent, I regret, and I've seen this with my nieces and nephews, I regret that Thomas won't know my dad or Steve's dad. So it's it's just a bummer because they were both really fantastic men. I didn't know Steve's dad, but from everything I've heard, he sounds like an incredible guy. So it's more of a, oh, that's that's so unfair that this kid doesn't get to have his grandpas. But I don't know. He, he's got two phenomenal grandmothers. And, and a lot of aunts and uncles who think he's pretty great. So he does okay, too. Thomas isn't hurting for attention. <laughs> the other thing that I found interesting about you, you were obsessed as a kid with the movie The Jerk. Yeah, I think it's my favorite movie. When people ask me, what's your favorite movie, my answer is The Jerk. Tell me about how that obsession played out. Well, I think... Um, like a lot of things that I was interested in my childhood, I got the cue from my older brother and sister. I kind of followed what they thought was cool and neat because um, that's what you're exposed to. And, and you're desperately always trying to like hang with your older siblings and fit in and you know have a reference point. When you're the, when you're the younger sister, uh, you'll give anything just to have something to talk about with them. So my older brother taped it on our Betamax. Oh, you're going way back. <laughs> way back. So this is probably like, I don't know, 83? I would guess, if I had to give it an old college try of a guess. Well, you guys had Betamax. Most people had VHS. Well, we, because my dad was like in what they now call an early adopter, early adapter, which is it? Adopter, adapter? He was the guy that was like, these CD things are going to be huge. And so he would buy it when it was like, $85,000, and then a year later, Japan would figure out how to make it. If he was still alive, he'd be always getting the new iPhones? Yes, okay. for sure, yes. Although I struggle to think of him with a smartphone. It's so okay. funny, because he right. passed away before all that technology. But anyway, so we taped it on our Betamax, which is very cutting edge. Right. And, uh, and it was around Christmas time, and it was off of network television. 
So I can tell you where all the commercial breaks are in that movie. I can tell you what the commercials are, like the Christmas Folgers commercial and all of that stuff, because I just watched it over and over and over again. And I think at first I probably watched it because my brother thought it was funny, but it completely shaped my sense of humor as a kid. It is a brilliant movie. Carl Reiner is... Carl Reiner wrote, uh, directed it. Yes, and, and also has um, uh, a cameo in it. And then um, Steve Martin, I don't, know if he, I don't know if he gets better than that. It's just so silly on every level, but it was my first sort of... Um, I think I felt like it was an adult comedy, and I felt very adult forgetting what was funny Did you, about Were it. you the type of person who would go and quote the movies at school, the um, lines? No, not so much. Because in, in that, I, I don't think anybody would have had the same reference point. I think they would have been like, what are you talking about? Unless they were my close friends and I subjected them to watching it. But no, I, it wasn't until years later, I think, you know, when I got into college and I found people that were like, oh, I, I know that movie. Or, you know, maybe late high school and stuff. And then after high school, you go to Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yes. Uh, but you didn't major in theater. Why do you think it was important later that you, you, you got a liberal arts degree? I, yeah, I'm really thankful that I didn't know I wanted to do what I do now because I think I would have been compelled to pick something that seriously focused on theater. So I entered Marquette as just a, I think general communications major or something and you don't have to declare until your sophomore year there so they give you like a year and a half to kind of figure it out then then I did declare myself a theater major but I entered as a sophomore and um, also ended up taking enough English and writing classes that I got a, a degree in that just because I that's kind of what I picked with all my um, free credits but I think that education served me so well a because I wasn't um, forced to worry about this career at a young age. I just could be in college and study what I liked. And and um, secondly, I don't think I would have been able to hang in a conservatory program. I don't I don't think that I I don't think that I excel in some of the ways that you would have to as an 18-year-old entering college to audition to get into a theater school. So I think that probably would have been heartbreaking to me. And maybe I would have been like, I can't do this. But instead, I was at Marquette, which is much more liberal arts focused, and the theater department, which is actually far better than it was when I was there, is it, it was all these people that sort of loved being in college first and then secondarily were like, I think I have a passion for this in some way. So I met a great group of people there. And while you were there, uh, a friend of yours, Tim Mason, yes. uh, took you and some friends down to Chicago yes. from Milwaukee uh, one night to see improv. Can you tell us what you remember about that night? Um, well, Tim kind of was <laughs> obsessed with improv, and I had no reference point for it. I don't, and he was sort of talking about this long form and the Herald and was mentioning people that I had never heard of, you know, like Del Close. And he, you know, had read, you know, a couple books, and he had done comedy sports in Kansas City. So he was kind of well-versed in short form and just like improv in general. And he really wanted, God love him, he really wanted to start an improv group on campus. And so, and I think he took a group of us that sort of sh showed an interest and we had sort of like an improv section in our theater class, you know, in my acting class. I had like an improv, whatever. And I loved it, but I didn't quite 
understand what it was. And so he drove a bunch of us to Chicago. We ate at um, Giordano's. For pizza. <laughs> like true out-of-towners. Yeah, yeah. And then um, he took us to, you know, two IOs ago. You know, not even like the old IO. Now it's the old, old IO. Which was where? Do you remember? I can't, I don't know. Because when I moved here, it was the one on Clark right near Wrigley. Right. But when we were here the few years previous... It might have been on Belmont. It was on Belmont. It was a small black box space on yeah, like Belmont and that's Racine. Now, that's exactly now across, where it was. Across from stage 773. That's exactly yeah. where it was. But yeah, yeah that's it. Because then there, there's a Giordano's right down the street, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 So yeah. that was the Giordano's we ate at. And that was... I, I mark everything in my life by the food I ate. So, so we went to um, the theater and we watched like two Herald shows. I mean, I would, I would give my left arm to like get a cast roster of like who because I'm sure it's people I know now but I was sort of mesmerized by the whole thing I didn't quite understand it I understood why the people doing it seemed to be having so much fun I wanted to I was like that looks great and I loved that the audience was all there and very participatory and eager I felt like I was stumbling into some secret that nobody like I was like wait what 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 some cult or something where everybody kind of knew what, how to behave and how to laugh. And I had just never seen anything like it because I had grown up seeing, you know, plays and musical theater and choir performances, but never, that was like a whole new level for me. So what happened on that the car ride home from Chicago? Well, I, there was a while there where we all excitedly talked about starting an improv group and we never got it off the ground. We never quite pulled the trigger and... Now there's a, a really wonderful improv group at Marquette, and I've met a lot of the students, you know, a couple of years ago there when I went back to do a show, and I'm so jealous of them. I'm so jealous that they, like, do, you know, a couple shows a semester in the, one of the beautiful theaters on campus, like, bigger than the little theater that is in our theater department, and they have a following, and they do, like, shows at the union and auditions, and it, it just so was, it, it was so not something that was there. And it just speaks to the explosion of improv. Now it's everywhere. Now high schoolers are doing it everywhere. Now Even people have younger. the vernacular. Yeah. yeah. People have that reference point. You know, people that grew up now on 30 Rock and can point to those scenes where Tina Fey is talking about coming up in Chicago and doing bad improv. And th that all of that wasn't there. So how do you decide, you're graduating Marquette, that you want to move to Chicago? Well, I've always loved Chicago, and it kind of felt like the natural next step. Like, Milwaukee didn't feel big enough to me. Um, you know, sadly, there's no sort of big metropolitan option in, in Michigan. You know, if this were 70 years ago, 75 years ago, it would be Detroit. But we all know what's happening in Detroit right now. So it, it seemed like the logical next step to do, to try stuff. And when I moved here, I wasn't even, I wasn't like, I'm going to go do improv. I just knew I wanted to like audition for plays and maybe write. And, you know, I was very kind of like, I just want to do the next thing. And also, um, it felt a little fun and dangerous because I knew it a little bit because my, my older brother went to Northwestern. So I was here a little bit here and there, but none of my family lived here at the time. So it felt like it could be my city. I could put a stamp on it, but um, yeah, and I didn't really get into improv until 
like a year after. And you were even ambivalent about auditioning for the conservatory at Second City. I didn't quite get it. I look back now and I didn't get what it was because in my now brother-in-law, who is, he was, you know, I don't even know if he was dating my sister at the time, but we, I knew him and he was very kind to me when I first moved here because he, he had lived here much longer. And um, he invited me to a party. So I moved here Thanksgiving weekend. He invited me to a Christmas party like three weeks later. And he said, so actually it was, it was pretty immediate that I started doing this now that I think about it. I gave myself much in my memory. I have a little gap there. But he, he said, you know, you should really audition for a second city. And I was like, well, how do you, I don't know how you do that. I, I just, I would think I thought there were the stages and then that's it. Main stage in ETC. Yeah, and, and I hadn't even seen a show. So you weren't aware of the touring company? No, or any no. Of the I hadn't business even theater seen a that show. Time. No, I hadn't even been in the building. I knew it was there, and it was sort of like on my list of things to do. And he said, you should call them and see when they're having auditions for their conservatory, and you should go do it. Because he had seen me perform in college. He was like, I think that you would really do great there, and you would love it. So I came home the next morning, called second city called the box office and like this is I, I feel like i'm telling like a grandma story but like this is i didn't have like a laptop to google like the class app like you called the box office and, and let's just like, say for the story that you were calling on a landline to another landline. yes i was yeah. or I, I you absolutely were using a payphone. yeah i was in my apartment calling on a landline to the box office to be like how do i and they gave me a number to call and whoever i talked to and it might be Judy Fabjance because she signed my first student ID card, which I still have. And now like, I know Judy, but like she was the person that like you gave your check to and then she signed your card and you gave, you got your coveted Second City ID card. But um, whoever was on the phone said, yeah, yeah, as a matter of fact, we're auditioning for the conservatory next week. So, and back then there weren't like rolling, you know, there was like, two I think there were two level ones and that was it right and then we went for that span I don't know it just it's it was so tiny big it was, now yeah, it's yeah. so big so the fact that I called and they were like yeah we're doing it next Tuesday and then um they said you she said but you will probably have to go through a through e or do improv for actors Unless you have, um, and I was like, oh, okay. She said, unless you have a theater degree or you've studied improv before. And I was like, I do, I have. And she's like, oh, great. You can go right to the conservatory audition. I was like, okay. I'm just walking through this blindly. Yeah, I'm just I showing no up. idea. Yeah. yeah, right? So much of life is just showing up, being like, I'm here. So she then, I remember taking meticulous notes about how to get to Piper's Alley, like what the Piper's Alley entrance was. Like, don't go in the main stage thing. Go around the corner. And how do you get there from the Sedgwick stop? Because I lived at the Belmont stop. So I was like, okay, that's the brown line. I remember really navigating this and being very nervous about it. What were you nervous about? I was nervous that, I think, and this I still am nervous about this to this day, that everybody else knows more than I do. And I continually find out that nobody knows what the fuck they're doing, just like me. Everybody's just kind of there figuring it out. But of course, you walk into the situation and you assume that everyone has received some sort of prep, some sort of secret information, 
and that you are going to look like a fool because somebody's going to go get up and do the thing 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 and you're and going, you ah. and you still have that oh god yeah yeah all the time all the time I think like okay I bet everybody else knows how to you know whatever fill in the blank write an original script write a TV submission packet show up an audition for a major motion picture when you've only done commercial audition whatever it is whatever the thing is that you haven't done yet I think I and I hope this is universal we assume that everybody else has been given some sort of like side whisper insider info when in actuality everybody's pretty terrified I can totally relate to that or it, do you ever get that thing is like I'm a fraud Oh, yeah. And they're going to find they're gonna find out. Yeah, and I think that was it, too, is, like, I had my theater degree, and I'd taken a few improv things in undergrad, and I was terrified that maybe in that audition I would reveal myself, and they would say, oh, but you, where did you study? Or, you know, like, I would do something that would allow them to know. Um, but I just, most importantly, or I, I wanted, I realized pretty early on I wanted to do it so then I was just like oh god I hope I do a good job I hope I do a good job so that they think I'm good enough to then give me the opportunity to try out well you did a good job right <laughs> yes, enough to certainly to get in you got into conservatory well I will say this to anybody who's listening I know so many fantastically talented people who didn't get into the conservatory or who that now I know is performers who blow my mind and they just for some reason that day I mean that is a true testament is to start asking people who you think are you know successful or succeeding in your arena ask them all the things they didn't get and it's a huge comfort what is something that you didn't get that you're oh man um, well I didn't get cast in the musical Oliver in fifth grade and I recently found a journal that I was like really bummed out about that. I auditioned to be an orphan for like the big arts high school production of Oliver. And it really, um, it really kind of devastated me. And it's so funny to look back and read it now because... What did, the, what did it say? It's, it, it, I talked about it for several days. And at the end of each entry, I would say like, you know what? I'm sure it's going to be fine and I'll, I won't be thinking about this in a couple of days and then cut to the next day. It's like, I'm still thinking about this. It just really was like a gut punch and a couple of my good friends made it in there. And I think early on, I knew that I wanted to do something like this. And so like, I took it as this like big sign, but you know, it didn't stop me. It just is amazing to look back at a fifth grade handwriting sample and be like, oh my God, nothing has changed. How do you deal with rejection? I've known you for a long time and stuff yeah. like that. You're always very positive, very fun to work with. When you, when you don't get something that you want, how do you deal, how do you process that rejection? Um, I, don't, I guess all the cliches, which are true, like you just, you offer something up immediately again. So if you don't, the easiest thing for me to do is if you don't get that, you immediately go back and try something similar or something new in the same arena. So Can that you give you, us an example? Um, I think, uh, well, writing-wise, like I, I've submitted to a lot of you know late-night shows, and you know, we have a lot of wonderful friends that work for these shows, and they're often looking out for us Chicago types and saying, like, 
Send in your stuff. They're looking for these people. Send us a packet. Yeah, Whoa. and you toil away at it, and you spend a lot of time. They're not easy things to accomplish, and it's the yay boo of getting the offer to submit something. What's you're like, the yay boo? Hey. You're like, oh, good, great, that's great. Somebody wants to read something I've written, and then immediately you're like, oh, shit, this is going to take a week of my life. And the reality, I have a very realistic mindset, so I'm like, the reality is I'm probably not going to get this. So then you have to look at it as the opportunity to get better at submitting. So like I'm leaving here today to go audition for a commercial. I probably won't get that commercial, but I, I, I look at that as my job, not the actual commercial shoot if I were to get it. Auditioning is the job, writing the packet is the job. And I think, I don't know, it sounds kind of cliched and bullshit, but I think if you can embrace that, you don't beat yourself up. Because then I did it. I did the job. My job was to submit a packet. I did it. I met the goal. Did I get the job? No, yes, maybe, sometimes. But it's hard. It's hard. And there are things that you put a lot of work into. You know, I think about some of the um, stuff that I created with my sketch comedy group, Schadenfreude, where we had some really great near misses, like with, with making a movie together, with... Um, getting a radio show that was on WBEZ to go nationally syndicated. There were some really like close misses where there were moments in my life where I was like, wow, this is gonna be a game changer. Here we are in LA having this meeting with these studio executives about who they wanna cast in this movie that we've written. Cut to 10 years later, like none of that happened. Well, and also you, um, I, I talked to a friend of yours, Justin Kaufman, a mutual yes. friend, and he said, um, you actually turned down Second City to, to commit to Schadenfreude. Is yes and no. Okay. To, to be very to be very we, we could, transparent. We, okay, great. Yeah, I mean, I, I think God love Justin. Like that's that's. So here's here's the story. So I finished with the conservatory, and they gave us a a real um, a speech at the end of our graduation that I really took to heart. And these were these were like Francis Collier, Michael Gelman, um, Marty DeMott. The, these are the people that I, I passed through the conservatory with. And at the end of the program, they said to us, do not sit around here and wait to be hired by this institution. Go out and practice your work, start your own stuff, create your own work, and we will come find you. That's how it's always worked. But the longer you sit around here waiting for us to grant you the golden ticket or the access to this theater, uh, the less you will be likely to get it. And it happens to very few people. I think they were just like reality setting, right? They were just like, okay guys, you did your level five and you, you performed on the ETC stage and your aunt came to see you. And, but like, here's the cold hard facts. Like this is the amount of people that the touring company hires. This is the amount of people that make it to the two stages. And now, again, in this conversation, there's so many more opportunities now with like the house teams and the boats. Yeah, oh, there's so much more going on now, which, which again, I, I'm a little jealous of. But I'm thankful for the fact that there wasn't a lot floating out there because I think I would have been a lot more complacent because they literally said there's what, 5, 10, 15, like 25 jobs in this building with the touring companies and the stages, give or take. Don't sit here and think that you're necessarily going to get one. Go and do your own work. So we took that to heart, and we, we had started writing, and we being um, Schadenfreude, which was the group of guys I met in the conservatory. 
which we, was Adam Witt. Adam Witt. Justin Kaufman. Justin Kaufman, Sandy, Sandy Marshall, Marshall, John Bolger. And in its infancy, in the first couple months, um, Ike Barinholtz and Jillian Vigman. And, um, and then later we expanded and, and Mark Hanner and Stephen Schmidt are a part of the company now. But it, 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 in its infancy, was a group of people that wanted to get together and write instead of do improv. And that was Adam's sort of call to action. He kind of picked a group of us and said, like, do you like writing comedy? And I remember saying, yeah, you know, because that was always kind of my first love because I didn't really know about improv. So he said, I want to get a group of people together and start writing sketch. And what, what, what was the sketch scene like back then? It was, it was really, really small. It was really small. Like, I'm trying to think of the people that were our contemporaries. There were some improv groups that, like, would cross over and maybe do a written show every once in a while. But there was not a lot. There might be, like, there was, I don't feel like there was a shortage of, like, two-person shows or solo shows that were written. But sketch groups, it was, it was kind of few and far between. There wasn't a huge, and this was the very end of the 90s like into the into the aughts so um and there was nobody that we could look to there was no like we were looking to kids in the hall and the state and um that was those were kind of our like and monty python of course but those were the the people that we studied we didn't really study anybody locally because there was not really much a generation above us um except for ucb but they were kind of on their way out. They were on their way out of town, not out of, out of, <laughs> definitely way in still. They were on their way physically out of town by the time we were kind of getting together. So people would tell us about the stunt shows that they would do and the stuff that they would pull off and where they gathered a crowd on Clark Street outside of Igo and threw a dummy out the window. Or I've heard so many great stories about their early shows that were much more written. And then they came back to one of the very first improv festivals and we went to go see their show which was a lot of the material from their television show so they were an early example too but there wasn't a lot of competition at all early on so um we started writing and then we just got we convinced um a regular improv slot up at a now um it's now jerry's deli in andersonville but it it was um cafe ashy then it was a lesbian dance bar called Stargaze, and now it's Jerry's, and it's a sandwich. It's a great sandwich shop. But that place had a little stage in the back, and we convinced some friends that we knew that had a regular improv night there to let us go on at midnight for free uh, on the rent that they were already paying. They were probably paying 100 bucks or what. And they were like, yeah, that's fine. Like, and so we did midnights while we were in the conservatory for like like 12 or 13 weeks and we just challenged ourselves to write a completely new show every week and it, a lot of it was horrendous as you can imagine but we figured out that we liked working with each other and then the conservatory ended and then we decided like let's keep writing and then they were doing Turquoise auditions and I somehow the word got to me and it was in the infancy stages of schadenfreude and I really believed that we had something special and I was like I think I, I think I don't want to abandon this yet, and I'm 
I felt confident that at some point in my life, if I really wanted to, I could make a way to work with Second City. Like I always felt safe there. Like I didn't think it was like gonna go away, obviously. So actually, it got bigger. I, it got bigger. And then it burned down. Right. Now it's getting right. bigger. Right. right, they're building it but, back up. Yeah. So, um, but they. Um, so I didn't go to the auditions for concert or for the um, touring company. And I was at my day job, and Frances Collier called me on the phone, and she said, "Where were you yesterday, or today, or whenever it was?" And I was like, "No, no, I, I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't sign up, or whatever. I don't know how it worked back then, but somebody reached out to me, and I said, "No." She said, "Why not?" And she said, "Something like something akin to, I really feel like you could have a job if you wanted to show up or did show up or." And so she, I think she just wanted to check and make sure that I wasn't like, what? No one called me or I didn't know. And I said, Francis, you guys told us to like go start our own thing. And so I'm doing schadenfreude and we're about to start this run up at the Heartland Studio Theater. And I really feel like this is going to be something big in my life. And she was phenomenal. I, I would love to know. She probably has no recollection of this conversation, but she said, you go do that. Second City will come find you. I guarantee it. And so I was like, okay. And I think she just meant like, I think it was really empowering because she was so positive instead of being like, big mistake. You know, you really botched it and this is going to be it for you. She could tell. And I kind of said, I was like, we're doing what you told us to do. You said, don't wait around. And now I'm following the rules now. here. Come on, don't <laughs> change the nice. rules. So I was just like, we're doing what you said and I'm having a blast and I think this is going to be something big in my life and I, I'm not ready. I was like, maybe next year, but I don't know. And she was like, that's fantastic. And she was such a huge supporter of us. Well, though that is such a sweet story because you think yeah. about Second City today yeah. and it's so corporate. I mean, that that's a great story of like how they were very st still very connected and to the students. Yeah, it and, was a huge and that was compliment. A, you know, and, and I'm sure she was probably in the auditions, wouldn't you say? Francis would have pulled for you. I assume that that's what happened, is maybe she had a roster of people that she'd seen recently come through the conservatory that she thought might do well in that audition scenario. The other part about this is, who knows if I would have gotten a job? I, I have no idea. I, I can't be here like, that would have been the beginning of my career. How do you look back at that? I mean, do you... I look back at it as a real hard choice of like, had I stuck around and really pursued auditioning for touring company, I would like to hope that at one point I would have been in that mix of people. And, and then who knows? I think it would have sent me probably out of Chicago earlier. I don't know. It would be. It would really be one of those sliding doors moments to see. I wouldn't have the relationships I do with the guys in Schadenfreude. I would like. It would have sent my life on a completely. But who knows? That's the fascinating thing. Maybe I'd be sitting on this couch, married to Steve, with this baby about to move Los. You know, who knows? If I had said yes to that audition. You know, Schadenfreude. You talked about the great opportunities and people that don't know Schadenfreude. You guys were huge here. You know, I mean, you're shaking your head. Yeah. And, are you embarrassed <laughs> I guess about it's that? Hard. I don't know. It, when you're sort of in it, it's hard to be like, we were huge. I do know that we had a fierce, fierce following. We had fans that were loyal and rabid and did the equivalent of what social media does now. They would drag their friends to come see the show 
in two feet of snow in, in Rogers Park. Right, which Rogers Park, not 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 a theater mecca at all. No. Very sketchy neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, think about what it is now. It's still not like, it's still struggling block to block, mm-hmm. you know, and I love that area. And, and back in 98, when we opened our run there, I, I mean, I, I can think of one, two, three, four friends and family members who had their windshields smashed open while they were at our show to steal everything in their car while they were watching our dumb sketch show. I mean, that happened regularly. That pe- I would say to people, you might want to take the L, like, parking's a little sketchy, and, like, if you park north of Pratt, like, Pratt, it, but what? You know, like, you'd have right. to, like, kind of direct people. Um, and we would walk to this, like, either CVS or Walgreens, like, a couple blocks south and a block or two west, and the things that we would see on a nightly basis, like pre-show, like, let's go get water and whatever. You know, I saw things that I would never <laughs> want anyone with a sane mind to see. But we found this little black box theater up there, and we wanted to be away from what people thought. Of. We wanted to brand ourselves as, like, Alterna, different, late night. We wanted that to be a destination that was uniquely schadenfreude's. So that we didn't want to share a stage. We didn't want to do like, you know, a little theater at Second City or which, again, at the time didn't really even exist. But like we didn't want to hitch ourselves to something that people already had a preconceived notion about. We wanted you, when you heard the Heartland Studio Theater, to think of Schadenfreude. And Mike James, who owns the Heartland Restaurant, who is a character and a half... Um, let us come in there. And I think at first he was like, oh, this is cute. Like, these guys are great. Good for you. And he's kind of like um, this great, like, aging hippie guy who loves everything and everybody and, you know, used to... And so he was very, like, inclusive and he loved that we were politically based. We did a lot, a lot, a lot of political, uh, local political sketch comedy humor. And, And then he saw the lines down the block and around and then he saw people coming to his restaurant beforehand to eat and drink and then he saw the red line tap which was next door their ticket sale or their um Liquor bar seat. sales yeah were like through the roof and so then they as a little community really helped us stay there you know so he said what if i didn't rent to anybody else because we would share the stage with like you know, some like Tennessee Williams play that was there on Thursday and Friday and we would go Friday at 1030 and we'd have to wait for the actors to pile out, you know, and he just said, what if I just rented it to you guys and you ran, ran the house. And so we did that for several years. He gave us that, that theater and we made it our own. And it was a little narrow space. Yeah. I mean, by today's standards, I mean, you, calling it a black box is being generous. A really generous. Yeah. With like a very non-backstage. We all shared like this one room with a toilet and I'm the only woman. And, you know, we like literally changed costumes on top of like while holding each other to brace ourselves so that we wouldn't fall out onto stage. Sometimes we'd use the alley as additional space if it was the summertime. Um yeah, I think it legally sat mm, 50, and then we would cram about 80. We would, like, seat people. It was, like, such a fire hazard. And, and the thing <laughs> is, I remember going to a show, and it was, like, the energy of a rock concert. Yeah, that was our goal. Our goal, again, so many of the things we did were was illegal. Like, it, we crammed twice as many people into that place as we should have. We had people sitting on the floor and in the aisles. We... 
when we started, we were $3 and a free can of beer. And we had a cooler when you walked in. And we you know, allowed you to put your hand in the ice, grab a cold can of beer, sit down, and we had like music playing, like club-like. And Steve Schmidt, who did all of our tech, would create like soundtracks to the evening. And people would, it would be palpable. It was a really, it, and it was a sweat box. We, people were literally touching each other. And there's nothing better for comedy than feeling people react next to you and it's a ripple effect. But we would sweat on the audience. We would touch the audience. I mean, we famously once got a critic very bloody by mistake with the end of our show. And we ended up, they submitted their dry cleaning bills and we had to like have a peacekeeping lunch with this um, reviewer. Is the reviewer still, is it still writing? Um, yes, although I think she has transitioned into a different section of the arts. I don't know if she's still here. Okay. She's been here and then gone and then here and then gone. I see okay. her name every once in a while. But um, you, were, you were the audience. Like, you could probably, you know, see me forgetting my lines or, you know. Did she write a good review after that? Um, she, she, she actually did. It actually wasn't a bad review. So I give her credit for that. Yes. It wasn't a great review because she spent time talking about, and I think the vibe of her um, <clears throat> review was that we were reckless, that we didn't, like, that you can't do that. You can't, if the audience doesn't subscribe to that sort of experience, you're not allowed to do that to them. And, you know, which played into our sensibility perfectly. Everything she said, which was like a little bit of a winger, finger wag, we were like, exactly. Like, we loved it. We loved it. We framed the um, complaint letter with the itemized, num like, the clothing items that we had to replace. And we had it backstage along with, like, a big blood splatter on the letter. We still have it. Um, but, yeah, you went into that theater and you were taken on a ride, whether you wanted to go or not. And it was an hour. It was fast, loud, crazy, and then... It was done. And we did it, you know, every weekend for years. And our, our gimmick was we would replace one or two things a week. So that if you came back in five or six weeks, you would see a completely new show. So it be able we could protect what was good in our show and the favorite pieces, try stuff out that was new that might be a little shaky for a couple of weeks, get that up to speed, and then rotate it out. Similar to like too much light and what the main stage does. Too much light uh, makes the baby go blind. Yeah, they Here. rotate their pieces out, and then you know even the stages at Second City when they're writing a new show, they they dis they, you know, they disengage the current show and start slotting new pieces. What made that group work, Schadenfreude? I don't know. I don't know. It was the right group of people at the right time. I don't, it's like one of those things where when you meet somebody and you immediately are attracted to them, you know. It, it's a little hard to explain like why that is happening. I think part of our success is definitely due to the fact that the majority of us are equally business minded as we are artistically minded. <coughs> Excuse me. I know a lot of people that um, are just brilliant, brilliant, brilliant artists, but can't figure out for the life of them how to market, how to get people in the theater to see them, how to you know effectively reach out and bring press and critics in. Um, and luckily, we had the right combination of people who enjoyed that art just as much as doing the comedy on stage. What do you think resist? What do you think the resistance of people of going? 
okay, I've got to market myself. I've got to brand my show. I've got to get audience. Why do I think people resist that? Yes. Because it's a pain in the ass. It's a ton of work. And you have to do almost as much of that as you do the creative fun stuff. And unless you're somebody that can kind of trick yourself into thinking that that is equally fun, you know, it's the old tree falls in the woods. Like, are you truly, like, you did this great show, you wrote it, you blood, sweat, and tears, and then seven people saw it. It kills me when I see really great stuff here in Chicago and people just assume that people are going to wander in and want to see art. What do you say to those people that go, well, if it's, you know, if you build it, they will come. I'll be discovered. If it's a good show, people will find it. You first have to have the people come so they can discover you. And you have to hustle. Like, you have to figure out what is the way that you're going to open yourself up. Because we... Early on, we had sort of a discussion about how we wanted to break out of the old um, $5 thing where there's like this adage in Chicago where like, I go see your show and I give you $5. Then on Friday night, you come see my show we're and you give me that dollars. $5 yes, back. Yes. And then I go see our friend's show and take you and we both give her 5 So we were like, we don't want that. We want regular Chicago arts going people and maybe people that never thought they would go to a theater people that would go to a rave or to a rock concert people or a movie to, or the movies yeah uh, people that would go to the empty bottle and drink and party there why can't we get them to come see schadenfreude and we we slowly did that we we like mimicked those venues and how they reach out to people and kind of brought them over and then it was word of mouth then you, then nothing was better for us than a friend saying to a buddy, "You got to come see this show on Friday night. It was awesome." And in that, uh, you, you you met your husband, your first husband, yeah. Sandy Marshall. Yeah, Sandy Marshall. And then you guys got divorced. Yes. How was that? <laughs> Being, Divorce got, is awesome, Jimmy. Yes. I highly recommend it. No, because in what way is it awesome? <laughs> no, it's it's a it's 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 impossibly hard. It's it's like, um, it is literally kind of letting go of something you thought was going to be. And I don't think there's anything else like it. Maybe maybe death is similar in that way where you're kind of like, oh, I thought that the social contract was that I would have this person in my life for X amount of years, but unfortunately they were taken from me. Um, that sounds very dramatic. But you're kind of like, <laughs> I promise you it's not. It's kind of, um, it's just the the small death of that like you when you get married you don't enter it lightly to be like hey let's see what happens for a couple of years but the thing that most amazed me about my divorce to sandy and we are really good friends to this day i talked to him yesterday on the phone he he people wanted so badly for there to be somebody to hate in our divorce people wanted so badly for me to say like well you know, he cheated, or I'm becoming a man, or like they wanted something to blame, and there wasn't anything huge and earth shattering like that. And I think that more than anything freaks people out big time. How was it still being in the group with him? It was really hard, but we both, we kind of treated it like a child. We both were like, we love this thing, we have given our life to it. So neither one of us was ready to say, like, I can't do this anymore. And we both, I think, and I'm speaking for him, so, but I'm pretty positive he would say the same thing. The joy that we got out of maintaining that artistic outlet and our friends in that group, because those guys are like, they're well, like my brothers. Yeah. So to give up that meant to give up 
more, like to give up that group of friends and that thing that we do together. And I think early on, both of us were like, oh, it's not worth all that. It's not that serious because we love it. Did you have a meeting to present it? Or I would imagine other people... To the, the other group, guys? Yeah, I would imagine they would God, have feelings around that too. Oh, they definitely did. I can't even remember, to tell you the truth. It's kind of like... I don't know. That's a really great question. I, maybe the guy, maybe like Justin or Adam or, or Mark would be able to answer that question. But um, no, I don't remember having like a formal, let's meet at S&G Diner and sit down and your father and I have an ultimate. No, I think it was much more casual than that because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a process. So it's not something that like this decision was made and now it's done. It, it takes a long time to end a marriage. It's expensive and it's painstaking. But like the, the beauty of the whole thing was that Sandy is an incredibly rational, kind, he's just a lovely person. And so there was never moments of, you know, I've talked to a lot of people that are like, oh my God, I could never talk to my ex. I could never, work. I need to look at them. And we never had that. It was difficult and hard and sad but it was never like, you know, it, was, it never came to that. I'm so thankful for that. Um, in 2002, uh, you did a, a web video with uh, Schadenfreude where you played this drunk Cubs fan. Yeah, way later than that. It was 2011. 2011. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I got it wrong. 2011. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, and... and um, People try to get videos to go viral all the time. I know. This one goes... Including me. Yes. Yeah. So why do you think this one did? I have no idea. To me, the, the lesson in this is you can try, 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 try to make something stick, and it might not. And then you can do something that is a throw-off, I don't know, what if we did this? And it might be the thing that you become known for. There's no rhyme or reason to it. And to beat your head against the wall to try to figure out what about that. I mean, I could like, I could speculate. I would say it's a character I'd been doing for years. So I knew it inside and out. Um, we did it at the last minute. We were filming something else. And Justin said to me, let's do a, let's do a quick video that we can post on WBEZ's website mostly to justify why he had been away from his desk that morning shooting something, but it was Cubs opening day, you know, and he's like, let's do a video for the station because we had had our show years before and they were very kind to schadenfreude and they would occasionally post stuff that we would do that was like city specific. And so Justin was like, let's just quickly before we leave Wrigley, before we leave the field area, let's just improvise an interview where I'm playing myself and I'm interviewing you as an opening day goer. And that's a character I've done for years on stage. And so... This drunk... Yeah, she's just a lovely... How, can you give us just a little sample for the listeners? Yeah, she, her name's Colleen Henneman. Um, she's kind of, like, I love her very much, but she's kind of what you would depict as sort of a, a sad sack, but doesn't quite know it. Like, lives her life large, loves the Cubs, but she's like, I just like, for the, I was like always gonna have a drink. And I was like, why not? It's 2 p.m. somewhere, so heck, have a drink. Like she's always in party mode. She's always 
Malpropisms are the name of her game. She doesn't quite know what she's saying, but she believes that she is the sexiest, most vital Cubs fan. Like she really feels like her energy is charging the team and like this year is going to be different. But she doesn't really watch the games. She knows a little bit. She mostly like goes to Yaxies and then to Red Ivy and then to Sluggers and that you know she does that just whole down crawl. Clark exactly Clark down Clark she's that girl she is that girl that like, we you see did, Saturday at my God one thirty a.m. Like, if you're any person that had to spend any amount of time at the old I.O. on Clark Street like you would literally have to fight your way upstream through those people to get to the theater to do a show like you would have to oh God it's 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 like zombie nation but um but anyway we did it really quickly and because I think I know her inside and out it was fun and Justin Kaufman is the best straight man you can ever ask for. He he will he will slow pitch a fat ball. To, I can crank it out of the park. He's such a good partner in that way. And so it was just the two of us and he knew where I was going before I did so he could set me up and I was just kind of trying to screw with him and make him laugh and that was it. And then we went back about our days and he went to the station and posted it and kind of gave a wink, wink, wink to April Fool's because the opening day that year was on April Fool's Day. And uh, people did not get that wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And it, it got picked up. Um, the first person, I think, first outlet that picked it up was Deadspin. And within, and for the first couple days, it got like a modest, like couple thousand views and, you know, the regular fare. Like we didn't, I can't even tell you how much I didn't think about it. I don't even think I went to the site to watch it. I don't think I wasn't like. I wonder what's going to happen with it. Like how we many have people, turned how many out downloads? so much content that has fallen on deaf ears, or maybe two people are like, "That was cool." Like there's so much out there that we've created that's been like, "Yay!" And so we just keep doing it. And then maybe like two or three days later, I came home from a Second City gig, and there, I had a message from a guy in high school that was like. Are you on the cover, a front page of Deadspin? And I was like, what? And I kind of knew what Deadspin was, but I didn't really. And then I got a message from my godson who is in New Zealand studying overseas and just said, this is you, what is going on? Because he had been sent it via like several sports outlets. And that was in the middle of the night. And so I was sort of like, oh my gosh, what? So I emailed the guys, the Schadenfreude guys, and I went to bed. And then the next morning it had just completely Exploded where people like sixty <clears throat> percent of people thought that I really was that woman. I, maybe sixty forty, maybe seventy thirty. There were a lot of people that thought I was a real person, and so they were. And my message to anybody listening is: if you ever go viral with a video, whether you're playing yourself or not, do not read the comments. Do not. What do they say? What are, the, what are some of the comments? Oh my god, they were horrifying. Like I was by myself at home. Okay. I'd come home. Which from is a long another day. thing: do not read them all. <laughs> Alone? No. Yeah, That's yeah. why, like, and it was too late to, like, call the guys. Like, I was like, oh, God, I'm not going right. to call and, like, wake up Sandy or Justin right now. So it's now. like 1130 at night. You're looking. Later. Oh. And so I'm receiving these infos. It's probably 1 a.m. And I'm like, wait, what? And I'm kind of clicking through to try to piece through what has happened. And then I get to the deadspin thing, and I see that, like, you know, it's got, like, the little flame next to it that means, it's, like, it's trending or whatever. So I'm like, what does that mean? So I'm, like, clicking through. And then I see, like, it has 1,048 comments so far, whatever. And I'm like, what? Like, there's already that many people commenting on this? 
And so I clicked through because I was like, what? Because the headline said something like, this drunk piece, you know, will regret she ever said these things on the air. So the headline painted the picture that I was a real person and that I was to be mocked for being drunk and exposed in that way. And so all of the comments followed suit. So they just believed that. Like headline. what were some of the mean things they said? Oh, they were like, I, this, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't expletive this woman with the lights off. And like, I bet like talking about like how, what I would be up for sexually, how people wouldn't want to be with me sexually, how, um, how ugly I was, how I should get my teeth fixed, how I should um, lose 25 pounds, how I would have a date if I looked X, Y, and Z. It was all aggressive. From a psychological perspective, yeah. what, what's going on? That well, they're, they're, they're responding like that. Um, well, first of all, it's sports driven, right? Okay. So right. anybody who loves or hates the Cubs now has somebody to pin it on. Like, if you hate the Cubs, you're like, this bitch is the reason why. The fans suck. They're all idiots, blah, blah, blah. If you love the Cubs, you're like, this bitch is crazy. Why is she representing my team? I don't want her, you know. So, it, and and then plus, you know, and a lot, I have a lot of great men in my life, but it's mostly a male-driven audience once it gets to those sports outlets. And, you know, I would say, sadly, we are learning in our current culture that People that take the time to comment on internet posts aren't absolutely at the top of the um, educational ladder. So, you know, they're trying to get a laugh too. Like, I think it's the pylon effect of like, there's something funny about that. So I'm going to do something funny and I'm going to say this and I'm going to, but it was crazy. And then it, it really went viral to the, to, you know, a couple million hits around the world. When you heard those comments, do you take them personally or just go, oh, you know, it's, it's the character. I mean, it's, it's I took it personally. I took it personally for maybe like six hours. Like I went to bed and then the next day I got together with Sandy and Justin and Sandy and I were like separated. We're like, we're not together. And I just was like, I need to sit with the two of you and I need to look at you and go, what the hell is happening? Because like, Radio stations were calling. The national Fox News outlet wanted, like, people were just piling on to be easy to get to Justin to find out how they could interview me and what my story was. And then a couple days later, Huffington Post wrote an expose saying she's a comedian. She's based in Chicago. This is her sketch comedy group. That's her writing partner. But, like, it was Tosh.0 and all those things that, like, take something funny that... And it truly was the definition of schadenfreude, which is delighting in other people's misfortune. I mean, the irony is the name of our group is exactly why people loved that video so much. Because I am a train wreck of a person. But people on the street still stop me. Still. People, I will be walking down. I was walking down the street. This was about a year ago with Steve. And some guy on a bike riding by was just like, Honda man, what's up? So it's still to this day. And I'm like, okay, like I am holding a baby and like with my husband. Did you get any like legitimate offers like TV people coming to you or um, agents or managers saying like- No, I think people, I had a lot of people reach out and sort of like sniff around to see what, I think once they found where I lived, not meaning physically, like where I lived in the world of comedy, they were like, oh, okay. This is her body of work. I can see all these other videos. These are the people she writes with. She, you know, she's affiliated with Second City at times. She's so 
No, no, no big Hollywood agent was like, listen. But I had a lot of people that I really like and respect reach out and be like, that was hilarious. And like, I, I still have people that are like, my, you know, people who know me, I kept that, that phenomenon. I have people that really know me well would say that like, my college roommate sent this to me and was like, check out this weird, and they were like, that's my friend Kate. <laughs> So people in my family got sent it, not knowing that it was me. So it was a, it was a weird ride. What's the good thing about going viral? Because I think it's, it's everybody's, you know, if you're doing videos. Um... Yeah, I would say my situation was extremely unique in that um, this was what was interesting about it. I have tried to make things hit, right? Like I create things and I want people, I want the most amount of people to like it. And ultimately, I want those people to be like, I like you. I think what you do is funny, right? That's like kind of what we're all aiming yes. for. So that's what I was aiming for. To then have that where a majority of the people don't know that you're a performer. So you're getting the fame recognition, but they think that you are a train wreck of a human being is a whole different thing. It would be very different if a viral video, or if a video went viral of something that was absolutely understood by the public that I was playing a character and ultimately it's the biggest compliment ever that people thought that I wasn't an actor it, it's it's amazing to me I'm like wow I, I don't know if there's anybody that's as crazy as my character Colleen Henneman apparently there are several people because people just thought of course this woman exists this is what's happening but it was a huge compliment that people thought that my quote-unquote performance was real but that was what was weird about that instance is that that whole thing of like we have an understanding you came and sat in the theater I am a performer and I did these things and then you laugh and clap that all goes out the window when people are approaching you on the L and asking you if you like to party because they think that you are that woman and then you have to say I'm actually a comedian I'm not that woman and to do that over and over again is exhausting. Like people would have bets in bars and they would send one person over to me and they would say, Are you, we were at a fundraiser for Mary Daly two nights later and this big gaggle of businessmen, they sent one guy over and they're like, can I ask you a question? And I knew immediately. I was like, uh-huh. He's like, are you that woman in the video? And I said, I am. He goes, are you real? And I said, I'm not. I'm an actor here in Chicago. I'm a sketch comedian. And they were like, Oh man, they all had placed money, bets. They all went back to the group and they were all like waving. They're like, come here, take a picture with us. And I'm like, that's okay. But they, they had their own thing going on. So that part of it was like a weird level of like, oh, I didn't sign up for this. Like it felt different than somebody being like, saw your video, saw your show, that was great, I liked it. Or I like that Heinemann character on right. the sitcom. Right, right, exactly, yeah. exactly. I see that you're a human being right. carrying your baby down the street right. right now. You probably aren't that woman. Right. So it was a weird, it, it, it made me be like, oh man, I don't know if I would want to reach a level of fame where people felt like they could yell stuff out the window at me when I'm carrying my Trader Joe's bags. Like, it was weird. It's really weird. We got to wrap this up because you've got an audition to go to. I do. Two, two <laughs> questions because it's almost 11 o'clock. Okay. One is, did Second City ever come calling? They reached out to me and um, asked if I would uh, audition to be a part of their uh, corporate division, which I've been working with since 2008, and I love it. 
So I write and perform and facilitate for Second City Works, formerly Second City Communications, um, and have traveled the world doing that. And it's the sweetest, most fun gig because the people I work with are outstanding. And, and the work is really um, oddly satisfying. Teaching people in the corporate sector about the world that we live in, the improv world, is is I don't know, on, on surface, I think I underestimated how cool and impactful it would be. It, it's funny because when, when I started years ago doing some corporate training, yeah. people would say, you're selling out. And then you go to do these workshops and, and they are, the people treat you like gods, like you're coming in. It's is, so is satisfying. Your... Yes. And they are so appreciative to have a little peek into the world that we are lucky to inhabit every day. And for I, two or three hours. I take it for granted. I take it for granted how much I enjoy what I do and the people I do it with. And then when you go into huge corporations that don't live in that world of even just like, hey, it's okay to be lighthearted for a couple hours, it's transformative. And it's really, really satisfying when people come up to you and they're like, I never thought about stuff that way. And this is really great. And I, I had a, a conversation, this was like two years ago, at a client, you know, I was kind of like, eh, I, didn't, I wasn't loving this company. They weren't like the most receptive and they were kind of hard. They're salespeople and they were kind of hard to crack. And we spent a couple of days with them. The, the type A? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very like aggressive. And and at the end of it, we were all staying in the same hotel. And at the end of it, this man came up to me and he said, I just wanted to talk to you about the workshop. And I was like, oh, and I had done like five or six over two days. Couldn't remember him. I was like, okay, don't recognize your face. Which is like a blur when you do that. Total blur. But sometimes I'm usually, like when you're doing one, you can be like, oh, I remember you. Let's talk about what just happened. So I was already like, great, great. I'm glad you liked it. And he just said, um, I don't, oh God, it's just like super, I was like, whoa. We were like in the bar, like we're done having a beer. And he came up to me and one of my other colleagues and said, um, I lost my wife this year. She committed suicide. And I have two young girls. One is a preteen. And I don't listen to her. I try, like, all she does is want to talk, and I'm annoyed by that. And I just learned in the two hours with you that if I just let her talk, we will get to a place where she will want to tell me more and she'll want to share more with me. I just need to not correct her and try to, like, solve. I just need to listen to her. And, he, and then he said, I want to take her to do improv classes. He lived on the East Coast. He's like, could you tell me where I could? So I gave him like Improv Asylum in Boston because they were close to Boston. And I was like, that it doesn't get any better than that. I mean, I really like what I do, but if you're going to come up and tell me that like a two-hour thing that your boss made you do profoundly changes the way you deal with your children, like that's pretty cool. And would you have thought about that when you started out? Because I would have been like, oh, uh, a compliment about a show or something like that. That, that, that. No, never. And it, it, the older I get, the more I appreciate what I get to do for a living. It's just super fun, compelling, great work. And Second City has been a huge part of my life for the last almost decade. And then I've also partnered with them um, on the theatrical side and, and wrote on the Lyric Opera project that they did and the Hubbard Street Dance project that they did. So Which both got great reviews. It was so fun, like because we got to totally immerse ourselves in those worlds. So I've been pulled on both sides of the building and it's been the best of all. So worlds. why move to LA? You, you, when you said you, your dream was to become <laughs> here to make mo to make money and do yeah. what you like to do, right? Yeah. Perform. You're doing that. Yeah. You're because one of the few people out there who's, who's doing I it. I know. I'm you very, know. very lucky, right? You're like, why double down? Like, right. walk away from the table while you're up. Um, I'm not really scared anymore here. I don't 
I rarely do stuff that makes me nervous. I rarely do stuff that I feel like is out of my comfort zone or above my, you know, pay grade. And LA and New York feels the same way for me. Feels like another thing, not necessarily like the next thing. Cause I, I do really feel strongly that living here in Chicago is, is the best. The city is incredible because you can live and work and do really good respected work. And, but LA or New York, and we just chose LA for a couple of reasons. Um, it's got more of what I don't know how to do yet. I don't, I don't, I've never written for television. I would love to do that. It scares the pants off of me. So I'm like, let's go do this. Let's go try it out. We may be sitting on this couch in two years when I'm back. I don't know. But I just know that if I don't try now, I, I'll regret it. When you come back in two years, bring your Emmys. <laughs> we, we end the podcast the same way every time we ask the same question. What one piece of advice would you give someone in improv today? Um, don't take yourself so seriously. If you like it, keep doing it. And you're going to meet really great people that you can do it along the way with. And if that's not enough, get out. Because being surrounded by the right people and doing what you love has to be enough. If you're gunning for like the thing, whatever the thing. it is, whatever, that job, that coworker, that recognition, then um, I think it's going to be a hell of a lot harder. Kate James, you've got to go to an audition. You've got to go to L.A. I'm going to nail it. Nail it, nail it. Thank you for being our guest on Improv Nerd. Thank you, Jimmy. I loved it. Oh, my God. That was great. And there you have it, another episode of Improv Nerd is in the Can. I know I sound amazed in my voice. Well, I am. I can't believe we keep churning these out. There's another one for the history books. I want to thank my guest today, Kate James. And her and Steve Waltine are going to do great out there in Los Angeles. They're two very talented people, and they're nice people on top of it. Uh, I want to thank my producer here, Dan Schiffmacher. He is the one who makes me sound so slick and so professional. If it wasn't for Dan, you wouldn't even be hearing my voice right now. Also, if you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning improv classes, my improv blog, my books, episodes, past episodes of Improv Nerd, go to my, my website, jimmycorain.com. As you know, we're taking over social media. We're doing it inch by inch, but we're doing it. Uh, go to the Improv Nerd Facebook page and like us because it really helps with my low self-esteem. Follow us on improv underscore nerd on Twitter. And then go to our YouTube channel, which is Improv Nerd Podcast, all one word, and see clips from our live show. We're also so fortunate to be part of the podcast collective, the Feral Audio family. So check out all the great um, podcasts on feralaudio.com. I took a big breath there, and I didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, go to feralaudio.com. I want to thank both our sponsors, Improv Tonight App and the Harold Ramis Film School. And I want to thank you for listening. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run. Hello, I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Young. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. <laughs> suicide Buddies. <laughs> That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway 
uh, black metal episode, how like just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. <laughs> He's like, I mean, if yeah. you lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's like literally what happened to Batman. He literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a, I'm a bat. bat. I'm, a, I'm, I'm a, bat. a bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich- I don't know what you want from me. And my, uh, and my, my girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. People. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My, uh, my. 